Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 1. Last time we finished up chapter 16 with Paul and Silas, if you remember, departing from Philippi. Today we're going to start chapter 17 with their trek south uh, through the coastal cities of eastern Greece. We're starting with verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the degrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we see that some of the cities on Paul's second missionary journey were on the Ignatian Way. And what that means is there was a lot of Roman roads, and a lot of them went out from Rome, and they tried to do as best they can to make them go out in a straight line. The Appian Way went from Rome south to the boot of Italy. The Ignatian Way went from Rome east to Asia but it also passed through Greece. And the interesting thing about these roads was what they would do is the Romans, it took them 500 years to build this infrastructure. They would dig a deep trench, pretend this is the trench in front of me, and they would take large stones and roll them into the trench. And the trench would be about four or five feet deep. Then they would take medium-sized stones and roll them on top of the, the larger stones. And then they would take smaller stones and either fit them together as a puzzle piece or they would use some type of volcanic sand or some type of filler material to finish up the road. Now, our roads are, uh, you know, high-tech. I think it's called macadam. They last about maybe 40 years, maybe less, and they have to be redone, and they're only a few inches thick. But these Roman roads lasted up until today, 2,000 years, and, and they're still standing. Pretty amazing stuff. What's also interesting is the Romans had mile markers. They actually found these ancient mile markers which as you were on the road, it would tell you how far away you were from a certain city. So the cool thing is that the Romans unwittingly spread the gospel. They made it easier for the itinerant preachers to go from one city to the other, spreading the gospel. It's amazing how man has free will, but in God's sovereignty, he foresaw this, and the Roman roads really helped the gospel to go out in all directions. Little, a few facts here. Thessalonica, capital of Macedonia. It was about 100 miles from Philippi. It's also the modern Salonica in Greece. If you go to Greece today, that same town still exists with ruins, and they just changed the name called Salonica. Actually, the current French president, Sarkozy's family, is from Salonica. Philippians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, they were towns, but they were also letters that were later written to these churches that Paul cultivated on his second missionary journey. And in verse 2, it says that Paul reasoned for three Sabbaths with them. So he spent at least three weeks, and in that time, 
and I'm praying about going into Philippians afterwards, what I want to do is, while Acts is still fresh in our minds, when we finish Acts, I'd like to go into some of the supporting letters so that we can, you know, while it's still in our minds, see the tie-ins there. But in Philippians 4, 15 through 16, we see that while Paul was intently giving the gospel, that the Philippian church sent money. They sent financial aid to support him while he preached the gospel. Now, we know Paul worked. He wasn't a slacker. But there were times that he certainly needed his needs ministered to, and the Philippians helped him out. And in verse 4, I read to you, it says that not a few of the leading women came. Now, uh, not a few was just an expression which meant a lot. It just was their figure of speech. So a lot of the prominent women, and you get the impression from the Greek word proton, which is where we get in the English proto or prototype, meaning first, chief, or important, that these were political women in, in high places that uh, had the means, you know, had some type of uh, political clout. So you see that Lydia, back in Philippi, helped out Paul while he was there. We see that the Philippians also helped out Paul financially, and now some of these leading women are also following them. And in every work blessed by God, he brings the necessary financial support needed for his work. Now, I don't agree, and I don't necessarily believe that God is in the hoarding ministry, some of these multi-million dollar uh, Christian uh, organizations where the pastor has two private jets in case one breaks down, he has another one. And some of them are actually unabashed about this type of wealth and hoarding. But certainly a ministry that God wants to survive will be blessed with the means to survive. You also see the other extreme. And don't be manipulated by some of these um, maybe ads or letters or things on the radio where they say, you better right now write us a check and send us money. Otherwise, God's word will be taken off the air. As if God needs us to, you know, to do that. It's kind of silly. I think it was Chuck Smith that said, where, where God guides, God provides. God moves mature Christians to be able to tithe and support the work of the gospel. I've also heard that one of the reasons God has held off his judgment on our pretty much debauched society is because of our uh, Westerners are one of the biggest supporters of the gospel abroad. It's a biblical mandate to support the gospel. And we as Americans and Westerners really give a lot to help support uh, missionaries abroad, the studies show. And also the, the second part of this, uh, this phrase is he reasons for three Sabbaths, but he reasons from the scriptures. Now, the scriptures are the impetus to salvation. Paul didn't use pop psychology to win these people over, to win them to salvation. Paul didn't use man's contemporary wisdom, which in five years or less will be obsolete. And Paul certainly didn't use the newest flash-in-the-pan Christian author, but he used the unchanging, timeless uh, message of the scriptures. And that's what was the impetus to salvation. And in verse 3, we see that as Paul is explaining this to them, He's explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer. This was, this was a, something that had to happen and rise again from the dead. So the Christ had to suffer, the Christ had to die, and the Christ had to rise again. And certainly in his Jewish audience, he would have to make that clear to them. Hey, guys, let's look at the Old Testament. You know, I know it's kind of hard for you to swallow right now that the Messiah was killed, but let's go back into the scripture in Psalm and Isaiah 53 and all these scriptures now show you that this had to happen. And there's your message of salvation. Sometimes we digest meat here on a Sunday. We'll talk about big words like eschatology or hermeneutics or propitiation, and we explain what that means, sanctification. And then sometimes in the scripture, and there's a nice mix, 
You have the meat of the word, and you also have the milk of the word, the, the simple things to grasp. Here we have the milk of the word. And here's the simple message. The Bible says that you know, God was, or man was created in God's image, and man as a whole rebelled against God. And if an Ad, Adam and Eve didn't do it, somebody else would have done it. And I'm sure if it came all the way to me and my wife, we would have done it. Okay, we've rebelled against God. We've chosen sin and the wrong way instead of him. So now God has a dilemma. He loves his creation. He wants us to be reconciled back to him. But God has to judge sin. God can't ignore sin. God's perfect. He can't coexist with sin. So here's God's dilemma. So the plan was to send Jesus into the world, send his son to be born of a virgin, lead a sinless life, and die a substitutionary death on the cross. When he shed his blood, it was for the remission of our sins. And the Christ had to die and to rise again, the resurrection. But the point here is that with Jesus dying on the cross, number one, we're reconciled back to God because the, the payment, the penalty for sin is paid for, okay? Uh, if somebody paid it, it was Jesus Christ. So his good reputation, his perfectness is imputed to us. So when God sees us, he sees us without sin. So it's a great, a great plan. Um, I don't think anybody could have come up with a better one. And certainly it was all hinged on the resurrection. And that's what Paul is telling us here. And we're going to see that uh, Easter, the resurrection, comes up early this year. It's actually in the end of March. But we're going to see that the whole gospel message, the whole plan of salvation, is, is hinged on the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we'd have a, we have a really serious problem here. Okay? Jesus sets the bar so high that the resurrection has never been attempted by anyone, and it's never been accomplished before. The resurrection is too fantastic to be false, and it's too easy to be proven a hoax if it was a hoax. All they had to do was find the body. And as time went on and the, the Christians were dying for their faith in the Colosseums, by the Romans, by the, uh, the radical Jewish sect at the time, everybody was against this small sect of Christians. But because many of them, over 500 at once, Paul says in Corinthians, saw Jesus rise from the dead, they're like, I'm not going to... I'm not going to worship those false gods. I'm not going to worship the emperor. I'd rather go to my death because I know where I'm going to be the moment I, my heart stops uh, beating. And we see in verse 4 that here's the fruit. Some of them were persuaded. The Bible tells us that God draws his, his creation unto him. God draws his beloved creation unto him for salvation. But the Bible also says in Matthew 28 that we have a responsibility Again, a biblical mandate, if you will, to preach the gospel, to spread it around. And in this process, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that some plant in this process, they plant the seeds, some water, but God is the one who gives the increase. And that's kind of cool because my wife's really into gardening, and I just ignored it at first. And then after a while, I saw these awesome flowers and plants come up, and you know, don't get too carried away, but it's aesthetically pretty, right? And uh, it just is amazing to see from a seed or a bulb or something, these things just start to come out of the ground. And before you know it, they're, they're blossoming and they're beautiful. And the only way to explain it is God's genetic structure that he put into the seed or the bulb that tells it what to do once it's in the ground, once it's exposed to water and nutrients, it just does its thing. So just like us, when we spread the gospel or we meet somebody who has had the gospel preached to them and we talk to them about Jesus, we're doing the planting and, and the watering, but God is the one who makes it grow and produces fruit. And 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that. So God's the one who's responsible for the outcome. Now, there's a few action verbs here. If you take all these verses together, we see that Paul reasoned. We see that Paul explained. We see that Paul demonstrated. 
he preached, and he persuaded. These were all the fruit, okay? The fruit was that people came to the kingdom because Paul did these things, because he loved the lost so much. And the question is, how far are we willing to go to bring people into the kingdom? How far are we willing to go? How much do we really love people? How much do we really love the lost? Because we all use these action verbs. Some of you persuade your boss to give you a raise. Some of you explain to your kids why they should behave and listen to you. And some of us demonstrate how we can get someone who doesn't agree with us to agree with our point of view. So we all use the same action verbs that Paul uses, but we use them to our gain. And the question is, will we use those things? Will we use our talents and our gifts? Will we use what God has given us to help to bring people who are lost into the kingdom? And in verse 5, we see that the ones who were not persuaded, some, some of the Jews who were not persuaded became envious and took rabble-rousers pretty much from the marketplace, gathered a mob, and set the city in an uproar, and attacked those of the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So what we see is that even today, some in radical sects around the world, religious sects on the mission field, still attack missionaries. One story came to mind because I read, I read that book, The Voice of the Martyrs, and one particular missionary stood out in my mind, the Staines family. I'm not sure where he was from exactly, but he was a Westerner. He came to India, and he worked in the, the leper hospital. He was married, and he had two young boys. And all, all they did was give to these people. You know, they brought in finances to help these people. They worked with the lepers at peril to themselves, getting an infection. Uh, and this was around in 1999. And... The way the story goes is, and he's doing these great things for the community. Uh, one day he's in the station wagon with his two boys, and he's stopped by a radical sect of religious zealots who didn't want the gospel coming in. And they stopped the vehicle, and they surrounded the vehicle, and they poured gasoline on the car, and they burned him and his two sons alive in the car. This is just one story. This happens all over the world. Forget about these are your fellow people that they're helping. These are the lepers. This is the hospital. These people are coming in to bless them. Find out what the message is about Jesus Christ before you react this way. But what we have to find out is, or we, what we learn quickly, is it's not a live and let live philosophy, but more of a we must destroy the Christian faith philosophy. And the question is why? Well, it's a spiritual, not a temporal issue. And we're going to see that more and also in uh, verse 13 when we get to it. Now, I've been passionate and energetic about sharing the gospel, but I've never resorted to or advocated violence uh, to get my message across. And Christians, if, they really, if we really believe in Jesus Christ and the word of God, it's something we should never do. Yes, have some done it over the years? Sure, but it certainly didn't come from Jesus. They weren't following the scriptures. They weren't following Jesus' message. But I want to take John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 which many of you have uh, read, I want to take them and combine them and tell you briefly from a spiritual sense what is going on here behind the scenes, right? Number one, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus, as the light, came into the world, and the world is dar in darkness. Prior to Jesus, the world was in darkness. Rebelliousness, sin, um, you know, they don't want anything to have to do with God, and Jesus came in as the light into the dark world. The Bible tells us that the light shined in darkness, now, you know when you're in a dark room and you flip on the light, if it's a powerful light, there's no more darkness, right? All of a sudden becomes light. So that's what Jesus does. Wherever he goes, his light shines in the darkness. Three, the darkness did not comprehend the light. Wait, what is this new thing? We've been in darkness for so long. What's this light? I, I, I'm having trouble with this. It didn't comprehend the light. 
and 4, it says that mankind loved darkness with which to practice his evil deeds. So, 5, the light is often rejected in favor of the darkness. And that still holds true today. The light is often rejected in favor of the darkness because when you're in darkness, spiritually, you do your evil deeds. When the light shines on you, you feel uncomfortable. All right? Jesus spoke about that. And we also see that it continues today. Darkness will do everything it can to stop the light from shining. Whether it was the Apostle Paul, or whether it was Graham Staines, or whether it maybe is you in your job or in your life that, that some are resisting you. And understand, it's a spiritual battle. Now, a year ago, I read an article. It kind of happened to us, but on a much smaller scale. A year ago, I read an article, and I thought nothing of it at the time. probably was in a Christian magazine, and it said that um, fundamentalist, Islamic, uh, whatever, extremists, certain groups are employing and training computer uh, people to hack into Christian websites. Now, they're not choosing the seeker-friendly websites. They're looking for the websites that really have a Christian adherence to Jesus as the Son of God, to Jesus as the resurrected one, to the Word of God being the ultimate authority, and they're going to hack into Christian websites. Fast forward to last Sunday when Pastor Anthony was preaching. Somebody comes in the church at 9 o'clock in the morning and says, have you looked at your website this morning? And I said, no, why? He said, because it's all Islamic. <laughs> Basically, what happened was they hacked into our website. They had the, the crescent moon, and they had uh, Arabic writing, and it was really awful looking. It was black and red. And uh, so, you know, Josh got on it real quickly to try to, and we, we got it fixed. So if you check it out today, don't think that you're, you know, you got into the wrong place. So you're in the right place if you check it out today. Now, I was, my biggest concern, see, I'm an optimist. All, I said to Josh, listen, is there any profanity on there? He said, no. I said, is there any pornography on there? He said, no. I said, good, I'm happy. I mean, it was all Arabic writing, and I can't read Arabic. I suppose if the translation is die infidel pig, we have a problem. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to be an optimistic about it. But similar to Paul's ministry, the darkness will always try to drive away the light, but it can't. There's... Uh, and it's no coincidence. I saw a testimony recently. Uh, it was from, I think, Pastor Jack Hibbs in Chino's Hills, California. It was a D- DVD of three men who, uh, they still have the accents, they still, they still have the ethnicity. Uh, they were former, I think two of them were, PLO terrorists. These guys were actually in the, uh, the uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization. And what they did was they talked about their undercover uh, covert operations to go into Israel and, you know, cause problems. That's what they do. They're terrorists. And it's amazing. You see the, the joy in their faces. I mean, they talked about all these awful things that even as kids at seven years old, they knew how to use Kalashnikovs. I mean, all the stuff you see is true. They would uh, have these shepherds, these, their, their bad guys, dress up as shepherds and strap the explosive to the bellies of the sheep and send them into Israel. I mean, really amazing Uh, things that they did to try to cause destruction and hate. And the guy talks about his life and then how he came to America looking to cause problems, and he got into a car accident. And he was in the hospital. Now he's laid up with broken bones, and the doctor was a Christian, the physical therapist was a Christian, and he's like, Allah, what are you doing to me in the hospital bed? But the amazing thing is, long story short, the guy comes to Christ. And these different terrorists, former terrorists, talk about their conversion experience. And now they have a joy when they speak. They're energetic. They're excited. They love Jews and they love Christians. And, you know, they're totally filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's amazing to me is that the darkness still tries to stop the light. But did you ever notice something? 
when you, again, if, you, if we shut all the lights off here, it would be dark. Um, you know, darkness is the absence of light. And there are devices such as bulbs and flashlights that can light up a room. But there's no device that you can come in and turn on that turns a lighted room into a dark room. It only works one way. You ever notice that? Now, I know Josh is probably going to say, well, what about a, a black hole? That has to do with gravitational pull. We'll save that for another time. Okay? So suffice it to say. But the thing is, the darkness can't stop the light. And even a lot of these former terrorists are coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, with conversion experience, telling all their secrets and their former life and renouncing it for Jesus Christ. Pretty fascinating stuff. Verse 4 and verse 12. Verse 4 and verse 12, which I said before, it said, Not a few had come to follow them. And again, not a few meant a lot. The loss of members from the local fellowships were now turning to Christ, and maybe that's one of the reasons why these people were stirred up to go after Paul and his, and his, uh, you know, his, you know, the guys who were with him to stop them from spreading the gospel. Hey, we're losing members here. People are leaving. Hey, it's their fault. Let's go after them. And they should just realize that these people left the local synagogues voluntarily to follow Paul. They weren't forced to do it. And God knows what he's doing. Because if the word is truly being taught today, no true godly organization ha should have to worry about losing members. You know, here, you're free to come and you're free to go. We don't do any gimmicks or any ploys to try to get you to stay. It's totally voluntary. And we're surrounded by a lot of churches in a five-mile radius. Some have closed down and some have popped up, and that's just the way it is. But my philosophy is this. The ones that don't teach the word of God are not a threat no matter what they have to offer, no matter how much money they have, no matter how many activities they have. If they're not preaching the word of God, they're not a threat. Because to me, I look at it this way. If you go to a church and you're looking for the word of God and you're hungry for a relationship with God, and they're not preaching the word of God, it's like eating an air sandwich. You've got two pieces of bread and there's nothing there, and you take a bite, you're eating and you're eating, and you have another air sandwich, and you eat that sandwich, and you know what? You never get filled. You just keep eating. There's nothing in there. And the way I look at it, too, is the ones that do teach the Word of God are our brothers and partners in ministry. Bring it on. The more, the merrier. And in verse 6, it says, So they didn't find um, who they were looking for, and they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, quote, These who have turned the world upside down have come here, too. Turning the world upside down. I want to hit that from three angles. The first one is meaning. The translators translated it to, they're turning the world upside down. Now, if you go into the, the Greek language, if you go into a little bit more literal rendering, it can also be translated to those who, who cause a removal or a driving away from, parentheses, the existing state of affairs or the status quo. And, and follow me on this one. This keeps coming up. The world is in darkness. Okay, we've seen that. We've seen... What about all the natural disasters that have happened in the last few months? Not just in the United States, overseas. You, you see the Tennessee, you see all these Midwestern states. I mean, they're just getting battered. Snowstorms, uh, tornadoes, all these awful events that have been happening. Um, we see that there's more campus shootings, right? NIU and there's a few other ones. We had, what, maybe four or five of them in the last month. Uh, church shootings, campus shootings. Uh, crime's becoming more sadistic. They just caught a guy recently that was engaging in cannibalism. So the world is really a mess. I mean, we are in darkness in this world. But as bad as the status quo is, many don't want the exposure to Jesus Christ. 
they don't want the exposure to the gospel because it would mean giving up their way of life. It would mean that magic word that nobody likes, change. I like where I'm at. I don't want to change. It's as if there was scales. And on the scales, on one side is all the bad things that are going on in the world. Hey, this is really bad. We have to do something about this. Now, on the other end of the scale is change in the form of the gospel. Well, you know, I don't like this, but to go from this to this and change and give my life to God, I don't know. That's pretty heavy, too. People don't want to change. They don't want to move away from the status quo. So some would rather stay in darkness and complain about it than to, what is this thing with this relationship with God? I want to know about that. And you don't want to get right to that change part. I'm going to revisit that. The second thing, so the first thing is meaning about turning the world upside down. The second point is action. Wouldn't that be something if our fellowship was accused of turning the South Brunswick-Princeton area upside down, but not with force, but with the life-changing message of the gospel? Now, let me talk about force for a minute. I read a little bit about Napoleon, and I don't, I don't think he was... It didn't really mention his faith, but I, don't, I don't, wouldn't say from his life that he was a strong believer if he was at all. But he did speak about Jesus Christ, and it's well documented. He said this, Napoleon. He said, I know men... And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, of course, meaning Alexander the Great. Caesar, of course, of the Roman Empire. Charlemagne, of course, of the Holy Roman Empire. And I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? The answer, upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Even from Napoleon's own lip, a hardened military uh, battler, new, new defeat and new victory. And this hardened, salty man was able to speak about Jesus and was totally, was, was just amazed by the qualities of Jesus Christ because normal men, the natural man, gets other men to follow him through fear and respect and intimidation and through an iron fist. But Jesus got millions of men to die and give their lives for him, okay, instead of worshiping something false, through love. Pretty amazing stuff. Imagine marriages healed, addictions being kicked, the, tr- the crime rate dropping. That might put me out of a job, so let's not get too carried away. <laughs> Mentally stable teens, if there is such a thing. I was a teen once. People saying, what's going on in South Brunswick? They're turning the world upside down. What are they doing? Third point I want to hit it through is mindset or the mind of God. Turning the world upside down. The irony is, sometimes what we think is right, God says, no, that's not right. Again, in the natural man, in the flesh, what we think is right, God says, that's not right. Isaiah tells us about a time where good will be looked at as evil, and evil will be looked at as good. And I think we're starting to see that in our society. What we don't want, God says is good. I'll give you a few examples. I stand before my fellow peers and I stand before God and I say, I am a self-made man, right? There's books that talk about um, making yourself a better person. Um, You don't need anybody. Strengthen yourself. You're a self-made person. You don't need to lean on anyone. I'm a self-made man. What would God's response be through the scripture? Well, I pretty much gave you everything you have. I gave you your gifts, your ability, your charisma, your your talents to make the, the fortune that you're making. I gave you everything. What did God say to the rich young ruler? He said, you fool, at this very night your life will be required of you. Then what are you going to do with all your riches? In Ecclesiastes, Solomon was complaining, pretty much, saying, 
I've amassed an empire and wealth and fortune. What if the person comes after me, squanders it? What if he ruins everything? Who cares? You're going to be dead. What does it matter? You know? But the point is, we say, I'm self-made, and God says, no, you're not. Like that, I could take that from you. Natural things happen. Disasters happen. People die. It happens. The second thing is, you may say, again, what do we think is, as in the natural man, looks good, and God says, that's stupid. <laughs> the second thing is, we say, I'm strong. God, I'm strong. Well, God says in 2 Corinthians, my strength is made perfect in weakness. He afflicted Paul. He allowed Paul to be afflicted. And he did not take the afflictions away from Paul. Because Paul was, a, he was brilliant. He was a good talker. He was charismatic. He was type A personality. He was a go-getter. And God was like, you know, just so you don't get a big head, you're gonna, I know you keep asking me about removing this thorn in your flesh, but I'm going to let that stay with you for a little while. So God allows things in our life, weakness, what we perceive as weakness, and God says, no, that's going to build strength. And my strength is going to be revealed through your weakness because then when you do something and you do something great for me, no one can say it was you because you were, you were afflicted. You were made weak. The last thing is, I'm an American. I'm free. I'm beholden to no one, Lord. I'm my own person. I'm free. I'm great. And Jesus says, if you really want to be great, you need to learn how to be a servant. You need to learn how to wash feet. You need to learn how to be a servant of all. So do you see how we say one thing, and God says something else, right? I wanted to be a pastor 10 years ago. After studying the Bible for a few years, I thought, well, i got a good aptitude for this. And I would have Bible studies at my house. But if I'm honest with myself, 10 years ago, it was all about me. And every time I try to interject myself into a situation uh, to be in ministry or to be a pastor, the Lord showed, closed the door on me. So I finally, you know, I chilled out for a while. Fast forward to two and a half years ago, when our last pastor had stepped down, there was a meeting with the heads of Calvary from California, from the East Coast, and we were all in the room, and they said, you're an elder, are you interested in the position of senior pastor for Calvary Chapel Cross Fields? And I said, no way, no way, I can't do that, that's too much, I already have a job, I don't want it. And it's almost as if God said, now you're ready. And I'm like, ten years ago I wanted to do this, and you, you didn't give it to me. Now I don't want to do it, and you tell me I have to do this. It wasn't like that, but he changed my heart, and now I'm here. You don't, you don't say that in a meeting to the heads of Calvary Chapel and then all of a sudden you become a pastor. I mean, just God is just amazing how he does things. So, and don't try to do reverse psychology with God. God, I don't want to be rich. Okay, you're going to be rich. Ah, I fooled you. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. He knows, he sees the heart. So, anyway. What I find interesting too is or, or my question to you is, are we willing to have a hand in turning the world upside down? Or even our little part of the world? Are we willing to have a hand in turning it upside down? Now take this for what it's worth. As a matter of fact, um, Pastor Brian Broderson had said something to this effect, so I'll blame him if it doesn't come out right. Uh, basically, you, if you look at these guys who are fundamentalist, you know, Islamic, and, and you know, the whole jihad thing, and and they, they give their children, they give their lives for Allah. What I find amazing is that they're worshiping a false god. You don't worship a god who wants you to blow innocent people up. That's insane. Okay. However, what I'm amazed is at their desire and their diligence for what they believe in. Okay? So separate the crimes and the satanic part of it from their desire and from their um, you know, wanting to please their god. And what 
I see sometimes in Christianity is Christianity, Christians want to be comfortable. They want a comfortable life. And sometimes the Christian faith is lackluster at best. Oh, I'm a Christian. No, you know, I'm doing my thing. But, you know, the more I see these, these, these former terrorists come to Christ and their passion and desire, they carry the same passion and say, you know what, what we were doing was wrong. It was evil. I renounce it. I repent. But they still bring that passion over to the, to the cause of Christ. And you can't stop them. I just, I just would like to see in my prayers that in Christianity, especially Western Christianity, we would have more of a desire and a passion for God, okay? Uh, just, it's just a thought. Verse 7. So what happens is they, uh, you know, th- there's an accusation leveled against Jason for harboring Paul and uh, Silas, and uh, the accusation is also that these men are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Basically, the, the charges, they're seditionists. They're claiming that there's another king besides Caesar. It's kind of hypocritical and ridiculous because, you know, these guys themselves don't like Caesar. But they, don't, they, you know, they want to make sure that these charges stick because the Romans, they're not going to entertain a religious squabble. But the Romans will get involved, the government will get involved with a, a situation where there's a sedition or there's a rebellion. And they would be punished if it could be proven true. The irony is the same accusation was leveled to Jesus Christ. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Now, these are religious leaders who are supposedly beholden to the only one true God, and they're saying, hey, our king is Caesar. Of course, again, there is a hypocrisy there. Jesus, he's upsetting the apple cart. He's a rebel rouser. He's rocking the boat. Paul, he's pulling us away from our status quo. Get rid of him. Now, you know you're in good company when your accusers are putting you in the same category as Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're certainly going to persecute you. If they follow my word, they'll follow your words. If they rebel against my words, they're going to rebel against you. And that's just the way it's going to work out. Okay, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed they departed. So Paul's comings and goings in Berea was kind of, was really very similar to Thessalonica. Actually, it was more common for Paul to go into a town and be persecuted and kicked out than it was for him to go there and be received and to everything would be okay. So the norm was for him to be kicked out and persecuted. Berea was 45 miles from Thessalonica. And in verse 11, I often quote this passage to encourage and challenge people and to find the truth. It says that those were, it was the Bereans, the Bereans were more fair-minded or noble, okay, than those in Thessalonica because of what they did, their actions. They received the word with readiness and searched the scripture to find if what Paul was saying was true. Are you a Berean? Are you a Berean? Do you just parrot maybe what other people say and just accept what they say? Do you parrot with people what people say about the Bible? Are you easily swayed? Do you go back to the scripture as your foundation? 
Do you take what the scientists say about evolution as gospel just because they're smart men and not look it up to see if it's true or not? The last pope tried that, and it, what it caused is, is the followers to have more questions than answers because he, because he tried to reconcile a world system with what the Bible said, and it becomes a problem. Worse yet, do you take what slick motivational speakers who cloak themselves as pastors, what they say because it sounds good, or do you do your homework? You know, um, I, I see, I don't, I don't want to pick on, because I, honestly I'm not really thrilled about any of the political candidates, but uh, there's this phenomenon now with Barack Obama where people go to the rallies and they start passing out. They're so taken by him. And it's not just him. There, there's, that happens at um, the so-called uh, Christian speakers, that they're so charismatic and so energetic that people are just swooned. And I just watched the camera. When they have the cameras and they pan to the people in the audience, they're like, you know, they have those, their mouths are open and they're these starry-eyed look. It's like, wake up, open your eyes, open your Bible, because he's not saying something that's biblical. And see, that's the problem. That's the problem. Do we, when, if you have a serious illness, right, would you go, you've got a serious illness. It could be life-threatening, but with the right surgeon, you'll be well and you'll live. Would you go to the phone book and open it up and look up physicians, 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 okay, close my eyes, that's the guy I'm picking, that's the guy I'm going to, right? Would you do that? No, it would be foolish. But why do people do the same thing when it comes to eternal life, which is much more important? We only got maybe 80, 90, 100 years on this earth. Why would we choose our, our, our place in eternal habitations by blindly just following somebody? Maybe because it sounds good. Maybe because somebody told you about it. Do your homework. That's why we pass out Bibles here. So what I'm saying, you can follow through and say, hey, that's off or that's right on, right? Bereans search the scriptures and question Paul, and I like that. Because I grew up in a denomination that you didn't question anything. You didn't question what the leaders were doing. You didn't question the Bible. You didn't question the dogmas or the belief systems or the traditions that they held. You didn't question it. See, we're naturally inquisitive. And to stifle that, that natural inquisitiveness goes against how we're created. Now, some would have looked at what the Bereans said and said, boy, those guys are bold. How could they question the, the great apostle Paul? What are they doing here? Well, there's a right way and a wrong way to question. And I believe, well, I know that the Bereans chose the right way. Let me go with the wrong way first. If you look at what Satan does, okay, Satan interjects question, a question in the wrong way. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Eden when he came to Eve, if he really wanted to ask an honest question, he would ask God, did you really mean that they were going to die? You know, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of speaking for them. Did you really mean that they were going to die if they were disobedient and they took of that fruit? That would have been a legitimate question. But what Satan did was he cornered Eve when her husband wasn't around, and he started having a conversation with her. And he said, you know, hey, Eve, what's going on? It's a nice day, isn't it? Pretty warm out. Hey, um, when God was talking to you back there, uh, did he really say that you would die if you ate of the fruit and disobeyed him? You see how subtle Satan is? He's a, he's a very subtle character. He didn't, you know, he just did it in a very surreptitious way. But that's, that's the way some people also emulate, emulate that, to cause suspicion, doubt, or aspersion. And Satan did it with God. And some people do that. They'll go around and they'll say, hey, you know, what's going on here? Or why is that person an elder? Or why is that in a bulletin? Or, you know, what's going on in this place? Instead of, quite frankly, asking the leadership, uh, hey, what's going on here, right? And what that does is it causes dissension, doubt, and mistrust. You know, evil deeds will always be done in the dark, in the shadows. 
the right way to do it is what the Bereans did. You see that the Bereans were very forthcoming, very upfront, and they opened up their Bibles and said, hey, let's reason this together. What's going on here? They didn't slink in the shadows. They said, hey, this doesn't sound right to me, Paul. Can you show me it in the scripture? Back it up. And that's the right way to do it. I've actually had somebody ask me uh, two weeks ago, they said, or maybe it was a week ago, they said, how come we don't do topical messages here? And I said, oh, that's a great question. Well, Calvary believes this. We go verse by verse, and if you're here for 10 years or so, you'll get through the whole Bible. And here's Calvary Chapel distinctives, and this is how we do it. Or, what's our philosophy on such and such? Are we dispensationalists? Why do we believe in pre-trib? And these are all legitimate questions that people ask, uh, and it's a good thing. As a matter of fact, I encourage questions from the pulpit. So if you have questions, definitely please ask somebody in leadership. And at the men's breakfast, uh, I'm making sure all of our leaders, elders, pastors are there. So if any of you are new, new here, I can introduce you to them, and we can, you know, we can ask questions, which is always a good thing. Okay, wrapping it up, let's go back to what we talked about before. And the question is, are we in the status quo? In the book of Acts, some people changed because of the gospel. Some people were, were regenerated. The Bible talks about that. They were changed, and they, um, they moved forward towards uh, repentance and ex- accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There was another group of people that dug their heels in and refused, and that's fine. I don't believe it. I'm not buying it. I'm not ready. It's not for me. The third group of people, some even caused violence to stop the gospel, to derail it. Not only am I not buying it, but I don't want anyone else to hear about it either. And the question is, where do we fit in on that continuum? If you're not a believer, it's only through change in the form of repentance that you can receive a blissful eternal life. The Bible says, he who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. If you are a believer, God won't use you if you get to a point where you say, I've plateaued, I've arrived, and I'm not going to change. I'm digging my heels in. This is as far as I want to go in my walk. Because God will just, he'll just pass you by and use somebody else. And the reason is that is because if you're truly in line with God's plan, it's very clear, we must change. Christianity is a dynamic, not a static faith or relationship. There's no staticness, if that's a word, in the Christian faith. We're always moving. Because if you really look at it, it's like a push and pull. We're either being conformed into the image of Christ or we're being conformed into the image of the world. It's just the way it is. You can't just stay, say, I'm going to stick here and I'm not going to move. Because you either have an influence on other people's lives or other people that you're hanging out with have an influence on you. It only, it's, it's got to work one way or the other. And some people may not be comfortable with change because, honestly, I'm not comfortable with change. But if I didn't change, I wouldn't have lasted very long in this position. The status quo in anybody's life can be like um, a stagnant pond. If you, if you have some water and it just sits there, it, it, the algae develops, bacteria get in it, and if you go to drink it, you're probably going to get sick. But moving water is, is usually an, a fresher. It's clean. It's moving through the, you know, the minerals and uh, you know, the sun's hitting and all that other kind of stuff. So what we should do at this point is take a look introspectively at ourselves and allow the Lord to make changes for his glory. Because... If we talk about turning the world upside down, and if you, we listen to this and say, and I'm studying it, and we say, hey, this is something I want to do. I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to help to turn the world upside down. It has to start with us. We can't think about changing the world unless we change ourselves first, right? So let's look at ways that we can do that. Let's pray.